Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Last month, author Matt Bondurant released a brand new novel that's based on a true story called Oleander City. So I thought today we would do something brand new on the podcast as we go back to an older episode of the show for a remastered version. This episode was originally recorded back in 2017 with Matt, who is also the author of The Wettest County in the World. That book was the basis of the 2012 movie Lawless. Lawless is about three brothers, Forrest, Howard, and Jack. The three brothers are bootleggers who run into the law while making illegal alcohol during Prohibition. Oh, and Jack is also Matt's grandfather. So he's not only telling a fascinating story, but also telling the story of his own family in his novel. Before we connect with Matt, though, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true. That means one of them is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, no one knows who cut Forrest's throat. Number two, the big shootout in the movie wasn't quite as big in real life. Number three, Charlie Rakes lived long enough to see the movie in theaters. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. Maybe it'll be obvious, maybe not. Can you find out which one is a lie? We'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Matt Bondurant about the historical accuracy of Wallace. This week, I'm super excited to be joined by Matt Bondurant. Matt is the author of The Wettest County in the World, the book that was adapted into the movie Lawless and tells the story of his grandfather, Jack Bondurant, as well as his two grand uncles, Forrest and Howard. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. Sure, no problem. Glad to be here. Now, before we start to chat about Lawless, I actually want to ask you about your last name because I might have already mispronounced it. I know in the movie, they actually pronounce it a few different ways. Bondurant, Bondurant, Bondurant. How do you pronounce your last name? You say Bondurant, but yeah, but but a lot of people in Franklin County um, say Bondurant. They sort of, uh, they kind of allied the last a little quicker, Bondurant. Um, and so it's a little confusing because my my father left Franklin County uh, as a, uh, when he joined the Navy. And so the kind of a Northern Virginia, the Northern pronunciation is Bondurant, but down in Franklin County, they say Bondurant. And then the movie, of course, they had, you know, you have a bunch of English and Australian people trying to say that. So that's what happens. <laughs> I want to talk about the, the title of the book, because in the beginning, uh, Shia LaBeouf, who plays Jack, your grandfather, uh, has a voiceover that mentions Franklin County is known as the wettest county in the world, which is also the title of your book. So was that something that was actually that Franklin County was actually known for back then? Or was that something the filmmakers were kind of working in to add in the title of your book? That was a name or a title that was given to the county. At the, at the first known reference that I could find to it was from the writer Sherwood Anderson, who plays a pretty big role in the book. Um, he's not in the movie at all, but in the book, he's a pretty big role. And, and he wrote an article for a magazine and when he was sort of investigating the Great Moonshine Conspiracy, uh, Franklin County Moonshine Conspiracy of 1935, which... Um, and he wrote, you know, in the sentence, he says, you know, where they're producing more alcohol than anyplace else, the wettest county in the world is Franklin County, Virginia. 
And then that kind of um, stuck. And Franklin County has been known as the, the, the wettest county in America for, for a long time, you know. And uh, it, it's it's a kind of a dubious distinction, I guess, but it's a, it's it's something that pretty well known in that, especially that part of the state. So the movie actually takes place in 1931. And is that basically the right time frame for the events or is the I know a lot of times in movies, the time frame, they change that or is that pretty accurate? It's slightly it's slightly adjusted. For example, the the incidents at Maggoty Creek Bridge where my grandfather and his brothers get shot, you know, which is the climax of the film. That was December of 1930. Um, but it's right around there and within the book, too, um, you know, because it's a it's a fictionalization of the true story. I um, compressed some events, you know, a little bit and um, adjusted some things, trying to kind of put the narrative together in a kind of a more seamless fashion. But, um, but it's basically very close. The other thing I'll say from the onset is there's there, a lot of the incidents, except for things like the shooting, because that was something that was reported obviously in court transcripts and in the newspaper. Um, everything else, you know, relatively unrecorded, you know, hard to find is in terms of specific dates or times and things like that. So there was, um, which is great for for me as a novelist is a lot of flexibility, you know, so I can uh, work it in. But um, no, I, th- I think that the film does a pretty good job. The book actually takes place over a, a number of years. Um, it goes all the way to 1935 and uh, it even has some big, some shots. Well, in the very beginning of the movie, they were the, the young boys. It's like 1917 that, that in the hog pen, you know, that's that starts off like the book does. So it's like the young the, the brothers are young and then it leaps forward to when they're older. And the book does that mostly. Um, there's a few other moments that are kind of skipped. But uh, but yeah, you know, basically the timing time period is right there. I like that you mentioned that a lot of it was undocumented because that kind of leads right into my next question, which is about the characters. And I know there's a lot of characters that we know are real, like your ancestors, as well as Floyd Banner. And they mentioned Al Capone. But then you have some kind of secondary characters, like I know the the guy that Jack and or even Cricket, you know, that. Jack and Cricket take the Moonshine 2 Gummy Walsh and kind of an associated flow banner. Couldn't find anything about that. Doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't exist. I just couldn't find any in the research I was doing before this. But what do you think about the characters? Were there a lot of them that were made up for the movie or were there some of them that they were actual, we just didn't know about that you uncovered in your research? Well, people like Gummy Walsh, for example, he's he is a kind of a, a made up or a... Um... Uh, a composite character, maybe. That's a guy, that's a character that I created to kind of give somebody to work with Jack and things like that. And the cricket, the cricket paint is, is a, again, also a kind of a composite. There was a, there was a guy named cricket back then and he was very handy with machines. Um, I don't know what his last name was and his, his relationship with the Bondurants in general is, kind of un, un really unknown it's not really sure how uh, if you know him and jack were best buddies or anything like that that's something again I, I i sort of added in the jessica chastain character for example that that is it that is a um a character that uh, maggie's a real person uh, you know ended up with my grand uncle forrest they were together for years and actually secretly married at some point and um so she's a real person and as you mentioned, like the Floyd Banner, who 
piece based on a on a sort of more local kingpin, let's say, moonshine kingpin that operated in West Virginia and Virginia with the last name of Floyd. The last name. Um, so th- what the movie guys did is they kind of adjusted those slightly. They also they they made Floyd Banner like more clearly like from Chicago, you know, this kind of city thing. And the same goes for Charlie Rakes. Probably the biggest transformation that the movie made from my book. And because in the book, uh, I, I tried to stay as close to the real person of Charlie Rakes as we know him. And Charlie Rakes was a Franklin County local. He was a you know, sheriff, but he was, he was known. They all knew each other, these guys, which is one of the reasons why I made it really curious for me because the historical record is clear that, uh, you know, in December 1930 in that bridge, Charlie Rakes really wanted to kill all those brothers. And we're not really, you know, and he said some things, some of which which are recorded in court transcripts, which are in the book and in the, in the film. But it wasn't like he was from Chicago and didn't know them before. He, he knew them, it sounds like, almost all their life if he was local. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we don't know the extent of it, but it's most likely they have known each other because they're both from this you know, relatively small area. But like he, he like threatened them and you know, he's, he had lines like, I thought you bought us a hard-boiled son of a bitches. Like that's in the court transcripts. And then that, you know, they put that into the, the film and I, and I early on in the discussions with John Hillcoat, um, Nick Cave, the director and screenwriter, that, that, that they wanted to accentuate the, you know, the conflict between Charlie Rakes and the brothers, and by making him an outsider, a kind of a city person, and that kind of thing, just kind of exacerbates makes the just makes the distinction between them, and he's more a much more clear villain because the, the real Charlie Rakes is not a real clear villain and it's really you know unusual and i devote you know a fair amount of time to him in the book trying to kind of come to an understanding um a a possible understanding plausible understanding of why he might you know come to have developed this great animosity to a degree that he wanted to to basically shoot them all down you know and almost basically in cold blood wow what about the other characters as far as their personality? Do you think the movie did a pretty good job of kind of portraying the personalities of, uh, well, not only the brothers, but also it sounds like they made some changes with Charlie, but the other characters as well? Yeah, they stuck pretty close to the book. Other than other than Charlie Rakes, they, they stuck pretty close to the book. And the thing, but the thing about the book, um, the... For example, the, the, the personality, somebody like Howard, the brother Howard, you know, he has some surviving relatives, but to do nobody that could tell us what Howard was like in 1930, you know, and, um, say this goes for all the brothers. And so it was difficult to kind of formulate, you know, I had to go off of some things that I knew about them that they had done. And um, a lot of the character formation was done from these court transcripts where, you know, I heard uh, you get to hear Forrest, for example, say various things. Yeah, you know, he says to one of the sheriff's deputies in court transcripts, he says, we know somebody's going to die unless you let us across this bridge, stuff like that. So these kind of threats, you know. So what I did is I took something like that, plus the fact that he was shot and survived, he just throat cut, survived, he had a load of lumber dropped on him and he survived, all these things. And... um and also, because he was clearly the, the leader of the group, th- I took like those elements and created a personality from that. You know what I mean? And the same goes with Howard. You know, and, you know Howard. Howard, for example, one of the sort of great telling details 
in the court transcripts that I found about Howard was that we know um, he showed up at that shooting late and and, and they said he was apparently drunk. So here we, we have the older brother, you know, the oldest brother of the family and at this pivotal moment, he shows up late and he's drunk, you know, so, so he's the guy that's drunk and shows up late, you know, and, and that develops his character to some degree. And, and, and Jack, you know, Jack was a little different because Jack was my grandfather and I knew him, but I didn't know him as an 18 year old boy. So I kind of had to go off of what I could know to my dad and everything like that. And, um, so it's a tricky thing, and and I think that the that the film adaptation, for the most part, was was you know stuck to my interpretations or character sort of creations. Maggie, for example, to, basically a total mystery, um, n- no real record of her at all. So I you know I was I was sort of free to. Uh, we know that she moved into that store with them and and was working that store with them for a long time. Um, apparently she was kind of quiet or something like that, but there's really so little to go off of that. Um, so what, one of the things I did in the book, which didn't make it into the film was that the, the, the author Sherwood Anderson, his final novel, he wrote this book, the novel called Kit Brandon, and it's based on this, um, semi-famous uh, female moonshiner at the time that was running around. And, um, and so he created this kind of image of her and, you know, she liked cars and she liked nice clothes. Anyway, and the idea of being, because I know that that, this is, this is where it gets, you know, slightly postmodern maybe, but I know that Anderson, when he was investigating the, the Bondurants and the Great Moonshine Conspiracy in 1935, right after that, he writes this Kit Brandon novel. That Kit Brandon novel was clearly inspired by many, there's incidents in that novel that are kind of like the Bondurants. So my thing was like, what if, this Kip Brandon character was modeled in part after this character, Maggie. So I kind of took a fictional person, you know, and, and brought it backwards into this. So the idea being that these are the kinds of games I like to play. They entertain me, pretty much nobody else. But that if you um, if you had read Kit Brandon, for example, or if you knew anything about Sherwood Anderson, and then you read this novel, you would, what I've done is provide like a backstory for He's not, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and so that, that kind of helped, um, create her, um, because, you know, it, there, n- none of these guys had letters. There was no diaries. There's no, I had very little to go on. It was like, uh, court transcripts and a couple newspaper clippings. And then, um, you know, I, whatever old timers that are still around, like my father, but of course, you know, when he was born 1932, so, you know, so, you know, there wasn't much to go on, very little to go on. Was there anything to go on then kind of as how the tensions increase between the law and the brothers? Was that something that was in the court transcripts or was that something, too, that you were going off of what you did have to in order to create the story? Yeah, th- th- there was a little bit of both. There was some developing tensions between the Bonrod family. The, the, the court transcripts make it clear that there, it, it was a, basically centered around these notions of granny fees or bribes that were paid and that people were paying bribes and the bond runs were not. That was a thorn in the side of the local law enforcement. And it has a lot to do with the Commonwealth attorney, a uh, man named Lee, they, they changed his name in Virginia. They changed his name in the film because Lee family in Virginia is a very old, um, sort of powerful family. And they, uh, they actually threatened legal action. 
Um, but everybody knew uh, that that Lee, uh, Commonwealth Attorney Lee, was you know he 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 was the trial in thirty five was um, a, they were prosecuting him. Um, that's one of the great ironies for for racketeering and all this stuff. You know that he'd set up this big scheme, and a lot of the irony is a lot of these bootleggers and moonshiners, like my grandfather and his brothers, were were testifying against him. Of course, because you know he was who he was, he got off and you know he was acquitted. Um, but everybody knew that he was the, um, you know, that he was sort of mastermind of this racketeering scheme where basically, you know, basically he, there was all this moonshine being made in, in, in the County and all over the place. And the cops knew about it. And like they represent in the early parts of the film where they're delivering to the police and the police. So, you know, and that comes from a variety of, of, of known things going on at the time, Franklin County, some historical record. Also my own father remembers being a young boy and driving with his father and they would make deliveries like a, like, like a milk truck. They, he would run a jar up and put it on the doorstep. I mean, it was, it was in the open and whatever, and everybody was doing fine. Everybody's making a little money. Um, and so Lee comes in, Carter Lee, Commonwealth attorney, Carter Lee comes in basically and says, you know, sees an opportunity. He says, you know, you, oh, you're going to pay 20 bucks for every load or whatever. Um, and we're going to institute this countywide and get everybody in the same system. So it's a classic kind of racketeering scheme. And, um, the Bonnerots didn't want to go along with it. And there's um, examples in the court transcripts of other, other players, other people, other guys um, who had, you know, interactions, altercations, who were sort of forced into it. They're threatening the Bonnerots on a couple different occasions, things like that. And then it seems to culminate in this shooting. Now, so, so for example, there are scenes like the, the, the main scene where, where Charlie Rake shows up at the, at the, the store the first time and him and him and Forrest have this sort of stare down and that kind of, that, that's a, that's a wholly fabricated scene, um, that I'm trying to kind of convey what was probably a, a, a you know, a longer, um, more subtle set of, of circumstances that, that led to them at odds with each other but it was it was certainly clear the historical record that 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 the bondrats didn't want to pay or refuse to and they felt they were kind of above this you know they 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 didn't want to be controlled in this way and um in that december 1930 basically everybody else was playing along except them and that's when they decided that they had to be you know put down and, uh, you know, one of the things I suggested, you know, the Charlie Riggs, one of the things that irritates him is that the Bondurants have this kind of reputation, which is clear in the court, tr- court transcripts, um, that people were afraid of him. That helped, again, help me create the characters, but people were clearly afraid of the Bondurants, especially Forrest. And so, I, you know, it got me thinking, well, you know, you're a sheriff's deputy, you're supposed to be the, the big man around the, the county and you're the law here and you've got this group of guys that feel they're above the law. And everybody's talking about how they, you know, they're so tough. They can't be a force, can't be killed. And that starts to work on you a little bit. And you get a little pissed off about that. And then, and then, for example, there's a book, there's a scene where at a sawmill, because they, the Bonnerts did run a sawmill too, is where Charlie Rakes shows up there and basically gets kind of humiliated, you know, by Forrest. And that sort of helped build that tension. And I think, yeah, maybe that's one of the reasons why, too, they switched it to the, the Guy Pierce sort of Chicago character because they needed to get to that quicker. They couldn't have these little, like, incidents. They needed to bring a guy in who was immediately at odds with Forrest, you know, so. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took? 
on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Maggie was also apparently from Chicago in the movie, as well as Charlie Rakes. And um, they kind of mentioned this almost connection between Franklin and Chicago, which seems kind of odd to me that it's like 800 and some miles away. Was that completely fabricated? Or it sounds like a lot of it was really just more local. It, yeah, Maggie was local. Yeah, it, in Franklin County, it was majority local. I think the connection is like Hillcoat in particular was fascinated with our classic ideas about the prohibition period and, you know, uh, Capone and, and rum running and, and that sort of angle of illegal spirits and stuff. And then there's this Appalachian style. And so he wanted to s- contrast those two sort of, you know, cause, cause everybody's familiar with the Capone Chicago prohibition gangsters and all that. And I think what he was, he thought was cool was that, Oh, we have this Alap- Appalachian style gangsters. And what if the two met, you know, like what would be the clash between them? But it, but it is true, though, that the amount of liquor that was being produced in Franklin County and some other areas of Appalachia, you know, was being transported to major cities. It was going to other cities. So these guys would have, you know, bootleggers in particular, transport people would have interactions with um, city folk. And, and, and there are numerous uh, stories, anecdotes and things that I've read in, in, in various accounts of, um, you know, guys in, in long coats, city people clearly showing up with a fleet of cars, you know, in Franklin County and, you know, mysteriously driving out in the middle of the night, you know. So, I mean, they're obviously coming in and picking up liquor. So that, there was dealings certainly between them. And I think that's one of the things that I explored in the book that, you know, and it's it's somewhat in the movie that. Prohibition caused this to go, caused the the making of moonshine really to go from a a much more local tradition based activity, you know, um, into a money making machine. You know, it, it's kind of like you know you could equate it to some contemporary drug uh, you know, enterprises, you know, or something like that, like as the, the creation of methamphetamine or something, I don't know, whatever. And then it like explodes and it becomes really popular. It's cheap, easy to make. So it was like that kind of thing. And so that, 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 that was the, the, 
you, an interesting transformation to, for me too, because I was trying to figure out why would the Bunnerets be so like, what was their, and it, you know, it's because they had this long tradition of doing it this way and nobody messed with them and that's the way they liked it. And, you know, and so this outside influence was very, you know, bothersome and all that. And, and I think the movie in particular really wanted to play up on that because that always, that always plays well dramatically. The, um, outsider coming in, trying to change the ways of the, of the regular folks kind of stuff, you know? So. Yeah, definitely. And I think th that scene where the, the two guys from Chicago, you know, kind of the outsiders coming in and the scene with, with Forrest where they cut his throat, that was just, I mean, that was wow. And then it just kind of escalates from there. You know, you have tar and feathering and, and eventually killing, you know, care, uh, cricket and, was that kind of back and forth? Was that something that actually happened? Those events um, occurred, um, but they, they're either, either we don't really know who did it or it's, it's most likely it was between competing factions. Um, syndicates, maybe, you know, like, so there'd be a sort of a Franklin County syndicate and then there'd be something in Floyd, neighboring counties would have their syndicates and then even West Virginia. And so sometimes people would try to kind of come in and muscle each other out, but by 1930, the, the sheriff's department under the direction of Carter Lee is starting to kind of muscle people and, and push people around. Now, the, um, there's a few notable examples. For example, in, in 1935, like with, before Carter Lee went to trial, Charlie Rakes died very suspiciously right before the trial, along with um, a couple other guys that um, this guy, Henry Abshire, who was kind of in the book and he's kind of Carter Lee, uh, he's, he's kind of uh, Charlie Rakes' uh, partner that they, they cut him out entirely. But he was um, he, he, transporting a prisoner in the middle of the night and he got shot to death and like a hail of bullets, like 20 bullets, you know, killed him and the prisoner he was transporting uh, literally days before the trial. And these are the guys that would have testified against you know, damning testimony against Carter. So the, the point is, is that Carter Lee was clearly willing to use, you know, force, excessive force to get these things done. So we have some evidence of, 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 of him doing that, but we also have a little bit of evidence from pushing people around. And then we also have the warring factions, um, like, for example, Forrest getting his throat cut. Nobody knows who did that. There's nobody was arrested for it. Um, and the conjecture was back then and remains that it was a, like a right, either a rival gang, uh, you know, like a group of guys that were like, uh, we want to take over this business or that they had come to, you know, effectively rob the place, you know, come in and steal his booze and his money. Cause they knew that that with this restaurant his way station. And they do that in the, in the, in the movie, they show him kind of hiding his money in the walls, little compartment, you know, he's kind of very careful because, um, that way station would, you know, when, when the shipments were coming through, he might have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, a lot of money for that time. And so people would come and, um, then there's also some conjecture that he, 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 that he got his throat cut just in an altercation, you know, he just, they, they got in a fight, but it was out in the parking lot. It's a couple guys. And then there's the whole, you know, walking to the uh, hospital bit, which is, um, what they say in the newspaper, you know, that's what he said he did. That's what he, that's all they know. He showed up at the hospital. Well, how'd you get here? I walked, you know, and it was like 10 miles, you know, it was a crazy distance. Doesn't really make sense to me. Um, that helped you know, obviously develop the kind of legend. And, but one of the things that I wanted to do, which is the movie, it's in the book and it's also in the movie was I'm a, a, a realist and, 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 you know, the, the idea of him walking, you know, walking, holding your neck together, or whatever, for losing that much blood for 10 miles in the snow. 
just not real plausible. So something else happened there. And, um, so I hit upon the idea, you know, what if it was, what if it was Maggie, you know, what, if, what if she saved you basically saved them, but he didn't know it. And so he goes on living this, um, you know, living this uh, persona. And then there's a pivotal moment where she tells him because she's trying to stop him from putting himself in danger again and again, you know, I know I, I'm the one that saved you. You think you're indestructible, but you're not, you know, it was, it was me. And then of course he's like, wait, you were there. If you were there, those guys were there. What happened to you? That is all that, that's a fabrication of my own. But, but, but what I was trying to do with the, with the, it's kind of like the Charlie Riggs thing. I'm trying to pre- present a plausible scenario of how that might've happened, you know, um, and make it as kind of realistic as possible because, you know, him just, him just walking, 10 miles doesn't really make a lot of sense. So you mentioned Charlie Rakes apparently didn't die in that shootout, but you had mentioned earlier that your grandfather and Forrest did get shot there. Was that, was that shootout fairly accurately d- depicted then other than Charlie Rakes? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, the shootout was certainly one of the scenes that was, um, let's say amplified and exaggerated quite a bit. In the real shootout, there's only a couple shot. I mean, basically in the real shootout, it was, he shot, Jack and then he shot Forrest, you know, and Forrest ran towards him. He shot Forrest and then Howard was standing there and he was going to shoot Howard, but one of his fellow deputies, Henry Abshire, knocked his hand down and the gun like discharged into the snow. So he was going to one, two, three, you know, he was going to kill the three brothers. And that was it. That was all. Now, that incident kind of brought the whole thing tumbling down because there were all these state and federal people involved by this point. So when this shooting incident occurred, that everybody started paying attention to looking at it and like, wait a minute, how, why is this guy executing people? And so that brought the whole scheme down. You know what I mean? So, it, so that, that, that did kind of finish the Carter Lee and his whole scheme, but no, not like that. Charlie Riggs died uh, a couple of years later, right before the testimony, as I was saying, and it was unusual. He um, he developed pneumonia and died in like a day, you know, just like like within one day. It was really weird. And so, in the book, I I I sort of suggest that 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 maybe Howard and 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 his brothers had something to do with that. Um, in the book, Howard finds him, and you know, and because Howard wants revenge, because Howard showed up late, watches his two brothers get shot by this man, so he's angry, so he takes revenge on him. And in the book, I, I try to create again a plausible scenario and how. Howard might have done something to him that caused him to get this like drastic pneumonia that killed him the next day, whatever. But the film, they, you know, you need a bigger, you need a bigger shootout at the end. You need all that stuff. And they, and, and this time they had a uh, Jack, you know, sh- showing up early and all uh, you know upset and ready to kill Rakes. You know, he's mad about the cricket paint murder kind of thing. So that's all that, that, that's all them at that point. And then the way that, uh, just a hail of bullet. There's a lot of shooting, you know, there's lots of shooting and there wasn't, there wasn't all that shooting. So that, that is probably the farthest from the historical record, you know, other than like, uh, Charlie race, not being from Chicago, just the way that whole thing played out that, um, I mean, Forrest gets shot like five times, right? Yeah. yeah it was, it was quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but you know, that's, that's filmmaking. That's what they did, you know, and, and I talked to Hillcoat about it. He's like, you know, we need a bigger, we got to, make a bigger thing. And so I understood that. 
So on the flip side of that, were there any parts that you saw in the movie where they're like, wow, they really nailed that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they did a good job of sort of presenting the environs of Franklin County and looked pretty good and all that. The, you saw bits about how uh, the Great Depression was, you know, people were um, uh, out of work and coming into, you know, come riding the rails, coming into town. Um, there's little, cl- little clips here and there that kind of help suggest that. Uh, I thought it was interesting the way they 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 hand, they handled the racial disparity of Franklin County, which is unusual because there were black families there, not many farmers. My father's next door neighbors was, was a black family, the, the DeShazos. And, and the way that they played, because they're delivering the liquor to them, which is a scene that I have in the book, seems to be an appropriate characterization of the kinds of relationship they had. I mean, because my, my father used to play with those kids and they, they were friend they were quite friendly. However, the members of that that family would never like come inside and eat at the dinner table with them. You know what I mean? It was like that kind of So I thought that was pretty well done. And I think the the, the way that the, the way that how the automobile was becoming a big deal, Jack and his fondness for that Jack's fondness for for rich uh, sort of nice things that was a motivating factor that I know my my, my father told me that uh, that his father my grandfather told him once that you know during the depression there was like this pair of boots in a window of a store and it cost two dollars and it, like all he could think about is if he just had two dollars he would get these boots like there was like, a big deal to him you know and even later on in life he 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 was a guy that liked nice things I mean. Not, he wasn't like flashy, you know, I and mean, these are nice things in like an Appalachian way. <laughs> <laughs> like a nice pair of boots. Yeah, it's not. A, yeah, it's not. a. So there were there were elements like that that I thought they did a really good job with the um, the sort of filling station store that they put together. That was a big part of the set. I thought that was remarkably I was able to go on set for that. I was visiting the set and hung around that building for a couple of days with with my father, actually. And that was beautifully done. I mean, the historical detail of that place was really cool. Um, and my dad was amazed. He was just wandering around in like the, um, those old cars. I mean, the cars were amazing. They had, you know, so that was really beautifully done. The old order Baptist church, uh, that, that Bertha, you know, old Jack's love interest, which is all, yeah, that's all true. My grandmother was uh, raised at a Dunkard, they call him, you know, old order. Baptist, German Baptist. And, um, you know, I researched about the kinds of um, ceremonies they had and the, what their service was like, for example, and the singing and the feet washing, you know, that's all something they did. And and that's one of the cool, one of the really cool things early on was, you know, you have this notorious, when I started researching this for a novel, you know, many years ago, was you have this, the Bonnerant brothers, the most sort of notorious group of villains in Franklin County. And then you have literally the preacher's daughter and in 1930 they are dating like that they, they get married like the next year my father's born at 32 my father the oldest child so i mean like all of this is happening in the midst of their courtship and i was like that's fascinating to me how does that even happen like how do you even get to you know get together get to know each other and then you know it's a classic kind of romeo and juliet thing you know these families um uh, couldn't be more different. So that was, uh, and I liked the way that they worked with that, kept a lot of the scene, you know, and then there's scenes, there's scenes in the, there's, there's several scenes that they played really straight from the book, which I was very happy about, but those weren't 
necessarily the most historically accurate, for example. Like, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the book is when is when Jessica Chastain confronts him with the idea of, you know, that she drove him to the hospital that night and that, you know, she and the suggestion is that those guys did something to her and she has that line about, you know, none of them ever did anything to me. It's kind of emotional moment. Like that is that that's exactly verbatim from the book, which is great. You know, I'm glad they did that. And that's one of my favorite scenes. So um you know, it, 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 it's a pretty good mix. You know, Hillcoat early on said that they wanted to retain as much historical accuracy as possible. You know, we, we're, we're going to change some of these things. We're going to do some of these things in the interest of dramatic tension. But, we, you know, and, 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 I, and in that way, I think his aims were very similar to mine. You know, to keep the story true, if not in a historical sense, then in a plausibility sense, that these kinds of things did happen, at least to other people, could happen or likely happened, but you have to imagine scenes, dialogue, and sell that stuff because there's no record of these things. And I, and I think that Hilka did the same, same kind of thing. And, and in the end, overall, I'm really happy with it. You know, I mean, even the Charlie Rakes sort of transformation to a Chicago gangster. I mean, I, I, I love what, what Guy Pierce did with it. That's a crazy character. And Guy Pierce is one of my favorite actors and all that. And so, but I understand why they did it. You know, it makes sense because trying to do a more, local Charlie Rakes, a much more nuanced, slower build, you know, all that stuff. It'd be hard to do that in a film, you know, in a two-hour film. Afterwards, at, at the end, after the shootout, everybody kind of ends up happy. I know you had mentioned Bertha with, with Jack and, and Forrest marrying Maggie and Howard gets married. Was that the way things ended? Was that pretty accurate as well? Yeah, that was. I mean, yeah. And one of the, one of the notable things was that Obviously, Jack got married, and uh, my father was born in '32. So, you know, when that there's that boy that sits on Jack's lap, and towards the end, that's supposed to be my father. You know, and they had six kids, and Howard also had a bunch of kids. Forrest never had any kids, but him and him and Maggie lived together. That's all true. There's a couple things going on. In one sense, the bond runs after that really never again became anything like they were like the Bonnerant boys kind of stuff was not that being said my grandfather was arrested for moonshine a couple times after that later he actually went to jail three different times for a year each time the last time my dad was in high school but that was like small you know that was much much more small time I mean it was a way to make extra money but it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't like it was before but it, let's say after my, my, by the time my, my, my dad was in, in high school or, you know, that, that last time it's, it's hard to explain, but even though he was, he was caught and, and, and served time there, he was still seen as a sort of upstanding member of the community. You know what I mean? Like the, there wasn't all the violence anymore. People were still making, you know, obviously making and selling some liquor. And if you got caught by the revenue service or the local sheriffs, whatever, and you weren't able to bribe them off or whatever, that wasn't looked upon as some kind of terrible crime. You know what I mean? It was so common that there wasn't, there wasn't much like a, a social stigma attached to it. So he was still an upstanding member of the community. And after that, by the time, say, like the, the, the 50s and 60s come around, Bonrats are out of the business, except the maybe very small private things as far as making goes, making liquor. And, um, and so, you know, it, it's, that that it's it's sort of a it's a part of our past, but it's um, 
you know, Howard went on to be a family man and all this kind of stuff. And, um, Forrest was, you know, Forrest was still involved. You know, he, had the, he still had this shop and he still got involved in a few things here and there, but it was never like it was before. Now, also, there's a scene in the book that's a lot like the scene at the end. And one of the, th- one of the, th- one of the reasons why I did it that way, I-, I sort of view that scene at the end as kind of a compression of like the next 20 years where they kind of get themselves out of this crime business and they've sort of, they've become normal people and this, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. They start having kids and you kind of compress it into one day to kind of demonstrate all those things. And, and part of it also was what was well, and I fully admit was that, you know, it's my own family I'm talking about here and my father. I didn't want, I wanted to, I wanted to show that the Bondurants ultimately became responsible citizens not, and, and that didn't go on. So, um, I wanted to, I wanted to end the book. Um, and, and I'm glad they did the movie too on that kind of upbeat, that sort of high note. It was important for me. It was important for my relatives to see it, you know, my, my uncles and aunts and, uh, my father and, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't end the thing with them still being criminals, you know I mean? And so that was a kind of a compression of really a journey to respectability that took place over a decade or two, you know, and like I said, by, by the fifties and sixties, um, they were all just farming, doing normal stuff, you know, it was, all that was gone. Was there anything in the book that uh, didn't make it into the movie. That was like maybe one of your favorite stories to give people kind of a peek into stuff that's in the book that if they read the book, they wouldn't be able to see in the movie. The whole Sherwood Anderson, Sherwood Anderson storyline. I mean, if people are not familiar with Sherwood Anderson, I think, I think they'll enjoy it. And if you, but if you are familiar with Sherwood Anderson, I think it's really kind of special. It's one of the things I'm most proud of the way that I was able to work him into the book. Because when I started researching and I found out that Sherwood Anderson was actually there, and roaming around Franklin County, putting together this article that he did, um, and then reading Kit Brandon, which is clearly based on some parts of it. Um, Sherwood Anderson's one of my literary heroes. I mean, he's arguably the most important prose stylist of uh, 20th century American fiction. I mean, he's the guy that taught Hemingway and Faulkner how to write. So in his book, Winesburg, Ohio, is... Um, you know, has to be considered one of the top 10 most important books in American literature in the 20, in the 20th century, certainly perhaps in all of all time, because it created a, a style and a kind of a template or organizational method, all kinds of things that became very distinctly American that you see born out in Hemingway and Faulkner, and then by extension on uh, people like uh, Fitzgerald or Flannery O'Connor, et cetera, et cetera. So vital, vitally important, but also because that book was so large and then the books preceding that, his career after that slowly sort of kind of diminished his books you know, became less popular and critically panned and so his his is a sort of unique american tragedy of uh, a rise to fame and then a sort of slow descent and he and then he and so he, by this time in 35 he's struggling you know he's struggling already faulkner and hemingways their stars ascended and ascendant and they both by this point, also, they've, um, they basically pushed him aside. You know, they basically kind of like, eh. and, um, a couple of his books were kind of like, were laughed at. Hemingway in the Torrents of Spring, um, mocked him openly. You know, he had, he had a couple of humiliating es- es- episodes. And so you had this kind of broken down man. And so it's, it's, it makes for a great sort of foil to these, these Bonner brothers and that he's trying to find out what's going on. And, 
he's having trouble breaking through the kind of uh, bubble of silence that persists in places like Rentley County. And it's still a very quiet place. And people don't talk about it. People don't talk about it. You don't talk about it. Nobody talks about it. That's why it was really hard. There's no stories. There's nothing written down. Really, because Nobody talked about it. And I, I think that whole element adds a really nice layer to the story because it provides you with a, with a kind of an outsider perspective. You know, somebody that's from outside the community coming in. And so the observation he makes, I think, are really interesting for a reader who's not familiar with, you know, that area or something like that. And he's also able to provide a, a more of a historical perspective. You know, a, he was a world-traveled guy. And so things like the Depression and what's going on, stock market, for example, things like that, which barely made much of a ripple in places like Franklin County. My dad, you know, my dad said they were poor before the Depression, they were poor during the Depression, they were poor after the Depression. Not much changed. So that whole element, which is about a third of the book, you know, I think adds a lot of interesting context. And, it's, and in particular, his pursuance of Maggie which is, as I said earlier, is like he, he was he was thinking about her as a character to use in his next novel. So as he's following Maggie around, trying to get, trying to figure her out. Also in the book, you know, there's a lot more um, about Howard. Howard in the film gets very little time. Jason Clark's a great actor. I liked I liked him. He's also the one that that he looks very much like a lot of he looked like Bonnerant in a lot of ways. But they didn't give him a whole lot to work with in the in the in the book. Howard has you know just about equal treatment as Forrest and Jack, and he has a whole backstory. He has a whole story of how he came to be the person that he is, and and I found that really fascinating. He's one of my, he's probably my favorite guy just because his story is so particularly interesting. And they left you know that's all that's all out. So I think that that any reader of the book is going to get a, a fuller appreciation of, of all the characters, but in particular, somebody like Howard, I think. Um, and then like we mentioned the Charlie Rake stuff, uh, stuff like that. There's also Maggie gets more, I mean, you know, Maggie, they, they had, they, you know, they rush her, they, she shows up, she's involved, you know, and then there's, there's like all the stuff happening. Whereas in the book, it's a more gradual, um, even like the kind of, uh, awkward courtship of, of Maggie and, and uh, Enforced. Now, the the courtship between Bertha and Jack, they did keep a lot of those scenes, which is great. I mean, that that's a, like when, when like the church scene when she washes his feet and he runs off all drunk, and then the the one where they they drive the car out into the field and he gives her that dress and stuff like that. That's all in the book, and and obviously that's that's the main love interest, so they wanted to keep that in, and and I'm glad they did. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's a lot in the book that even if you've seen the movie there's still going to be a lot more. So I guess my final question would be, where can people get the book? Uh, you can still get it anywhere. It's, um, it's a bit, you know, it's on Amazon. It's in most bookstores around the country, certainly available online. It's managed to continue to, to sell well over the years. I think it's, you know, I think obviously the bit that the movie has a lot, had a lot to do with that. And the based on a true story aspect. Um, a lot of people find that it's a, it's funny the, the sales always really tick up on around Father's Day. Like it's apparently it's a big, it's a good gift to give to your older dad or something. You know what I mean? Because like it's the kind of book that he'll read and like because there's like there's some fighting and shooting and liquor in it. But you know, fine by me. That's cool. So no, it, it's the what is counting the world. And, and then of course there's a version called Lawless too, which is the exact same book. They just have the title Lawless. Like they couldn't do what is counting the world for the film because. The main, it's it's kind of long and awkward. It also sounds like the pornographic version of the, 
right? I mean, that's the funny thing is you could have the porno version of the book and we don't have to change the name. It's the same. But the, um, the big deal they told me was that the wettest, like the idea of wet versus dry counties is something that's not understood internationally in the international market, as you probably know, is a big deal. You know, they got to be able to sell this in Europe. And so, and like, so wet that, you know, the the, the people would be very confused by this idea of a wettest county, which is something we, we understand as Americans. So like they, um, they, they, they came up with, uh, with, with lawless, they actually, somebody else was going to have a movie called lawless and he gave him the, the title. I forget it was. I was a famous director. It's like my mind now. Anyway, but yeah, so lawless, you know, and they, they, then they say, well, do, do, do you want to do a, we're going to do a, a copy of the book and we're going to call it lawless. And is that all right? Okay, sure, I guess, you know, and um, so there's some of those, those, some of those are out there too. But yeah, no, you can get it anywhere, and especially Amazon. Sounds great. I'll make sure to include links to that in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. Yeah, sure. Glad to do it. Thank you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to hear more about the true story, I would highly recommend picking up a copy of Matt's novel that the movie is based on called The Wettest County in the World. As always, you can find links to that book as well as Matt's brand new book that was published just last month. That's June of 2022, in case you're listening to this in the future. (laughs) That book is called Oleander City, and it's also a novel that's based on a true story. You can find the link to his books in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, no one knows who cut Forrest's throat. Number two, the big shootout in the movie wasn't quite as big in real life. Number three, Charlie Rakes lived long enough to see the movie in theaters. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. No one knows who cut Forrest's throat. That is true. Matt explained that even though we don't know who cut his throat, what we do know is Forrest showed up at the hospital with his throat cut and claimed he walked there some 10 miles from where it happened. But that's not real plausible for someone to walk that far bleeding out from a throat cut like that. So Matt filled in some details in his novel for a more plausible story that might have happened. And that's what was shown in the movie. That brings us to number two. The big shootout in the movie wasn't quite as big in real life. That is also true. Matt told us that the shootout was one of the biggest changes they made in the movie to make it a much bigger shootout than it actually was. It's not to say it didn't happen. It just wasn't raining as many bullets as we saw in the movie. That means number three is the lie. Charlie Rakes lived long enough to see the movie in theaters. Matt told us that Charlie Rakes died under mysterious circumstances as he came down with pneumonia just before he was supposed to give testimony and then passed away like a day later. If you've made it this far into the episode, you're one of the biggest fans of the show and I'd love to hear from you. What's your favorite movie that's based on a true story? What's what's an episode you'd love to hear in the future? Let me know. You can reach out to me on the show's home on the web based on a true story podcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.